This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, April 14th, 2017, episode 38, concerning men afflicted by snakes and some serpent lore. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval text. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And spring is springing its springiest here in the Midwest, after a month of yo-yoing temperatures where we'd have a week in the 70s followed by a week in the 40s, highs near 80 one day, and a frost warning the next. Uh, But I had to mow my lawn the other day for the first time this year, and the April showers have already been rolling in right on cue, so it's time for sleeping things to wake back up. And that includes all of our cold-blooded friends and neighbors. The place I live in backs up to what you might charitably call a creek bed, but more accurately should call a drainage ditch. Uh, It's not cement-lined, and it's quite overgrown with vegetation, but I'm pretty sure it's an old but man-made waterway for channeling stormwater down to an actual natural waterway uh, that flows through town here. Anyway, the point is that it's a natural habitat for lots of critters, uh, a kind of 15-foot-wide greenway that runs through my neighborhood. I've heard coyotes running through it, I've had deer chilling out in my backyard, uh, and I live close to the center of a college town. I have to listen to epic raccoon fights, which would put Tasmanian devils to shame, uh, and snakes. I get snakes in my yard, usually just little green garden snakes, uh, but sometimes a great big four or five foot long black rat snake uh, who might live, or at least vacations, under a prefab storage shed that's back there. I've never seen anything venomous in my yard, so I can afford to feel pretty nonchalant about these snakes. Uh, I wouldn't want to find that rat snake trapped in my basement, um, but outside, under the shed, uh, he or she is a nice bit of free pest control. Of the animals we might class as creepy crawlies, uh, I think I probably have the least phobic response to snakes. Uh, I can't say I'm totally unmoved by a snake sighting, it will still make me instinctively freeze up. Uh, but just momentarily, and I'll regain my composure. I'm not, like some people I actually know, going to chase after it and try to pick it up. I will maintain a respectful distance, uh, but I'm not going to go run shrieking inside either. Now, rodents and big spiders? uh, That's a different story. It would be wonderfully timely if I had an early spring snake sighting to share to open this episode with. I don't. Uh, But, as the warmer, wetter weather settles in, I am stealing myself for the inevitable encounter. And hopefully, my next snake experience will go better than those in today's texts. We'll start with three miracle stories involving snakes. The first two come from our old standby, The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich, by Thomas of Monmouth. These are solid gold death trip material. Uh, Thomas, for all his other faults of character and ideology, as we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, he at least never fails to deliver a wonderfully detailed and evocative scene. Thomas's text comes with a rubric, a uh, little descriptive chapter headings, uh, which I'll include to introduce both of these episodes, which Thomas presents at different points in his lengthy catalog of miracles performed at the Shrine of William. The third story, about a man named Oswulf and his struggles with the serpent, comes from a different source, uh, but one we've also had on the show before, Simeon of Durham's History of the Church of Durham. After we hear those, I'll talk about them for a bit, uh, and then I'll share a couple of other primary sources 
that show late classical and medieval understandings of snakes and how they work. But let's start with the stories. I'll be reading from Jessup and James's translation of Thomas of Monmouth and Joseph Stevenson's translation of Simeon, uh, the latter with some changes based on David Rollison's edition of Simeon, uh, and both with, as usual, a few edits and tweaks of my own to make oral comprehension uh, just a little bit easier. I'm going to stop that right there. Uh, that is an example of lazy sound design. Uh, while the sound of a rattlesnake has become the nigh-universal audio signifier of snakedom, uh, the rattlesnake, in all of its various species, is, of course, an exclusively New World animal. So using it here is anachronistic and ageographic. So instead, here is the sound of a snake from the classic Intellivision game cartridge, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and if you don't know what an Intellivision is, then you need to start listening to my imaginary other podcast, 1980s Death Trip. Also, apparently in the sound design fiction I'm creating, I'm using old vinyl sound effects records uh, that I could do a record scratch on. We're going to talk about tropes versus plausibility uh, later on, um, but this is just one example of this issue still being very much a current one. Okay, on with the story. Of the young man who brought up live vipers. So the most blessed martyr, after his translation into the church, began to shine with greater miracles than aforetime, and showed by manifest signs how great he was in the sight of God. For when his translation was but recently effected, a youth brought by his father came from the village called Heliton to St. William's tomb. He had been a herdsman, and was looking after his flocks one day when he happened to fall asleep in the field under some bushes. As he lay snoring with an open mouth, a viper suddenly crept into his mouth, and finding, as it seemed, an agreeable sojourn there, betook itself into his intestines. He awoke, unconscious of his mishap, yet feeling the stirring of the plague within him. His entrails were tormented with the pain of the noxious pest, and, as the days went on, his restlessness increased. He knew not what it could be, and wondered what was so sharply gnawing at his vitals but it began to be conjectured from his symptoms. He spent several years in this condition of torment, and eventually, as I have said, was brought by his father to St. William's tomb to be cured by his merits. His father prayed and offered a candle, then scraped the stone of the tomb, soaked the scrapings in holy water, and gave it to his sick son to drink. Thereupon the power of the martyr began at once to work along with the faith of the father, for when the sacred potion had descended into his stomach, 
the maddened viper began to be so tormented within as if it could by no means endure the presence of the holy liquid. The pain increased, and the youth rushed at full speed out of the church and fell on the ground before the doors. Then, with intense pain, he brought up the viper and two young ones and a great deal of matter and remained for some time lying apparently lifeless on the ground. Those present were naturally affrighted at the horrid portent. The father, in his distress, arose and attacked the viper and killed it and its young as the slayers of his son, and put them in a cleft stick, intending to keep them for a sign of this great miracle. After an hour, the youth arose, whole, and, giving thanks to God and St. William his preserver, returned homewards in joy with his father. Of the Cure of a Man Who Was Swollen by the Breath of a Viper Another matter I cannot pass over in silence, which I ascertained from the witness of two priests, Galfred of St. Christopher's and Ralph, son of Hervey the Baker, and some others who bore testimony to the fact. There was then a man of Blytheborough, known to the priests I have named, dwelling in the country and well provided with goods. In the month of August, he was standing behind his reapers in the field, when, on a sudden, a viper of unwanted and wonderful size raised its head with terrible hissings and attacked him. He was at first startled by the suddenness of the thing, but soon regained his wits, and, snatching a stake out of a hedge hard by, set upon the beast and struck it as hard as he could. The viper was badly hurt, but erected about half of its body and made another fierce onslaught but was repulsed a second time with the stake. It then, hissing, sent forth from its mouth a fearful sulfurous vapor against its foe and infected him on the instant with its pestiferous breath. He attacked it with increased rage, showered blows upon it, and succeeded in killing both the parent snake and also two young ones with which it was big, and then put them all on the stake in token of his victory. He then returned to the reapers, but they could scarcely recognize him, for his aspect was already beginning to change, and his whole body to puff, swell, and grow black. In a moment, severe pains attacked his limbs, and he was seized with weakness, and his life seemed in jeopardy. To be short, he was carried home by the reapers, and lay for three days without voice or consciousness, and was thought to be dead. On the third day, he seemed to revive and breathed again. Opening his languid eyes, he turned them to the friends at his side and said, Behold, I die, unless God's mercy succor me speedily. Therefore, I commit myself to the protection of the glorious martyr William, by whose merits I firmly believe I can be healed. Measure, then, the length and breadth of my body in all haste with a thread, and let a candle be made of that length, and if I recover, I will take it myself to him on foot. His orders were carried out. The event was wonderful and surprising in quickness, for at the very instant when he began to be measured and the candle to be made, the whole of the swelling subsided and disappeared, and, what is more wonderful, it came to pass that not the least trace of it remained, just as if he had not suffered at all from it. Gladdened by the swift working of the divine pity, he rose and hastened to his glorious liberator, William the Martyr, and paid his vow. Which done, he returned home in joy. 
from Simeon of Durham. There was also another man of evil character named Oswulf, in whose person occurred the incident which we are about to report, as we have frequently heard the same described by many eyewitnesses. One day, on awaking from a sleep which he had been enjoying in the fields, he discovered that a serpent was twisted round his neck. He seized it with his hand and dashed it to the ground, but it twined itself round his neck a second time. Once more did he throw it on the earth, but he was instantaneously attacked by it exactly in the same manner as before. It mattered not whether he threw the snake into the fire or the water or on the ground. It always regained its hold round his neck, how he knew not. Sometimes he took a sword and cut it into pieces, but forthwith the selfsame serpent was twisting round his neck. At first it was a very little one, but it gradually grew larger and larger. Still, however, he experienced no harm from its venom. But whenever he entered that church, which is rendered illustrious by the bodily presence of the most holy confessor Cuthbert, at the very moment when he crossed the threshold, the serpent left him, nor did it presume to return so long as he continued within the fabric of the building. But whenever he went out, it immediately twisted itself closely round his neck. After he had endured this annoyance for some considerable period, he at last fell upon a plan for releasing himself. For three successive days and nights he remained within the church at prayer, and when he came out, he was thenceforth unmolested by the grasp of the serpent. So, going on a pilgrimage, he was never afterwards seen in this country. So, there we have our three narratives. They provide us with an interesting mix of what we might call plausibles and implausibles. Although really that's not the best set of terms, because I don't really want to make it seem like our goal is to sift fact from fiction with these stories. Uh, so maybe we should go with something like artificial versus empirical or observational. Basically, we have some elements that feel like they're there because they are literary or folkloric tropes. Uh, so for example, both of Thomas's stories have shared motifs, which suggests that perhaps they've been run through the same oral traditional filter and acquired their common details through a kind of gravitational pull to a common folkloric paradigm. It's notably curious, for example, that in both stories, the viper is accompanied by a pair of offspring. Both also involve uh, the snake being displayed on a stick, uh, though that may well be observational. Uh, in that it perhaps records a common folk practice, not unlike the old farmer's practice of nailing dead crows to the barn door as a kind of warning or deterrent to others of their kind. Both stories involve a person who appears to be dead, suddenly reviving. And in the first of Thomas's tales, and in Simeon, the snake attacks while the person is sleeping. These are all the kind of elements I'd expect to find listed in something like Stith Thompson's Motif Index of Folk Literature. They have a whiff of stock imagery about them. On the observational or plausible side, I do think the description of the man poisoned by the viper's breath seems like a reasonably believable, if a touch exaggerated, a description of someone having an anaphylactic reaction to a snake bite. And I'm going to assume that there was an actual snake bite. Uh, I think we can safely dismiss the whole poisonous breath business, um, though that was certainly something that was believed in at the time. 
There is only one venomous snake native to Great Britain, and that is the European viper, or adder. This isn't a particularly dangerous species. Uh, they're rather small, especially compared to North American snakes, um, seldom getting much larger than two feet long. Uh, of course, size has nothing to do with the potency of venom, but even there, the European viper's venom is not a lethal neurotoxin. Um, it usually just causes localized pain, swelling, and bruising, and very rarely leads to fatalities. Uh, and my guess, the hard statistics I can find online are frustratingly vague on this count for some reason, uh, but my guess is that the rare deaths that do occur are less caused by the action of the venom itself and more from severe allergic reactions from sensitive people who happen to get bitten, uh, which is certainly is a phenomenon that happens. And getting bitten takes quite a bit of work, since this viper is fairly non-aggressive and tends to flee from humans rather than strike. Accidentally getting stepped on seems to be the main trigger for bites when they do occur. All of which continues to cast some doubt on the ferocious combat depicted in Thomas's tale, but there might be some truth to the symptoms he describes. Then again, those are also the stock symptoms for poisoning generally in medieval medicine, uh, as we saw in episode one of this show with the description of the effects of toad poison. Simeon also claims an empirical grounding to his tale, claiming to have got it from eyewitnesses, but this one veers much further into the supernatural and implausible. Uh, and it also seems deeply unbelievable. Uh, and unbelievable in that I have a hard time buying that Simeon's own audience would accept this story. That there was a man in living memory in their local community who had an actual snake constricting around his neck all the time for, quote, a considerable period. As an old urban legend passed down? Sure. As something that happened in a distant land, perhaps? Why not? But as a relatively recent local tale? I just don't know. Thomas's stories, in contrast, seem far more credible, uh, albeit with invented or mistaken explanations of cause and effect, but I have no problem believing that Thomas and his audience of fellow monks at Norwich actually knew two people who suffered actual medical crises, which were then blamed on snakes. I don't know what the young man in the first story threw up, and I'm pretty confident it wasn't live snakes. However, I can imagine how it might have been something that made people think snakes were involved. Or, simpler still, all you need is the folkloric belief that chronic bowel pain is caused by snakes living in there, and then once the boy's pain is cured, then by that logic, the snakes must have left his body in some way, and the storyteller can safely conclude that this must have happened and insert that detail into his story without any actual need for further evidence. I don't know exactly what happened in that field where the man encountered a viper, but I don't have a hard time believing he got bitten and he had a severe allergic reaction and swelled up and went into a sort of semi-comatose state for a few days, but recovered. I have a much harder time finding any reality to Simeon's Oswolf. Since his snake is clearly a supernatural creature in this case, I mean, it's immune to all damage, uh, then perhaps I could see people accepting this story if it were claimed that the serpent were otherwise invisible, uh, perceptible only to the afflicted Oswolf, which is a common enough trope on its own, invisible demons tormenting individuals. And maybe that was the story, and Simeon just has lost that particular detail. My own thought, uh, though I haven't found any evidence to confirm this, um, is that maybe a snake around the neck is a literalization of a disease metaphor, like 
Charlie horse or butterflies in your stomach. Maybe this is a distorted account of an actual medical condition that had a colorful name that Simeon has just taken literally. Or maybe it's a mixture of both. Um, Internal worms, after all, are blamed for lots of aches and pains and diseases in this period, and the categorical difference between worms and snakes was not particularly well established, uh, neither biologically nor linguistically. Worm, meaning dragon or serpent, is the same word as worm, meaning earthworm. Uh, The spelling with the O comes later, but it's not a different word than the spellings you see with a Y or a U. So maybe there was an Oswolf who thought he had a worm in his neck that was paining him, and he only found relief from it when he was praying in church, or he believed this at least. And your classic game of whispers delivers this eventually to Simeon as the tale of a man with an implacable and indestructible serpent physically coiled around his neck. Or someone, maybe even Simeon himself, invented it out of whole cloth. Uh, That's always a possibility with our sources. All right, since our narratives themselves were rather short, I thought it might be fun to also look at some more general snake lore. Uh, So I have three sources to share from. The first is not medieval, it's late classical, but it is hugely influential on medieval scholarship and incredibly widely quoted by medieval authors. This is The Etymologies of Isidore of Seville, written in the early 7th century. In this monumental reference work, Isidore attempts, as his title suggests, to explain the meanings of the Latin names of things, and in doing so, essentially catalogs all the major fields of knowledge of his day. We're going to dip into Book 12, which is all about animals, and specifically look at Chapter 4, De Serpentibus, or Concerning Serpents. I'll mostly let it speak for itself, um, though I'd just like to point out the interesting way, speaking of plausibles and implausibles, that Isidore will go sometimes in one sentence from describing something in startlingly accurate naturalistic detail, such as his description of how snakes use their ventral scales to propel themselves, uh, which is one way that snakes move, called rectilinear locomotion, uh, though you mainly find it in large snakes, uh, and it's distinct from the more common lateral undulation movement, which is about the whole body and not just digging in with the scales. Uh, But anyway, Isidore will go from that to ridiculous ideas like a snake being able to survive with its head being separated from the body so long as two inches of body remain attached to that head because that's allegedly enough for a snake like a flatworm to regenerate from. From the perspective of modern knowledge, it's the kind of thing that can give you whiplash. We last heard from Isidore on this show uh, with a few comments about bees, where we saw the same pattern, almost perfectly scientific observations of real animal behavior intermixed with utterly legendary fiction. Uh, You'll also hear Isidore supporting his points in this section with quotations not so much from the great natural philosophers, there there are a couple, uh, but mostly from the poets, which goes part and parcel with his method. I'll be reading from the 2006 translation of the Etymologies by Barney Lewis Beach and Berghoff. Uh, I'm not going to read all of chapter four, um, but we'll just select some of the more interesting bits and things particularly relevant to today's stories. Our translators provide the Latin terms that Isidore is discussing in parentheses after their English translations, Uh, and I'll include this in my reading, since the similarities between the different Latin words are how Isidore establishes his etymological arguments. Again, with a mixture of good linguistics sometimes and uh, pure folklore many other times. Uh, Okay, so here is Isidore on serpents. 
Serpent, anguis, is the term for the family of all snakes, because they can bend and twist, and thus it is anguis because it is turned at angles, angulosus, and never straight. Snakes were always considered among the pagans as the spirits of places, whence Perseus says, Paint two snakes, boys, the place is sacred. The colubere, another word for snake, is thus named because it inhabits the shadows, colut umbras, or because it glides in slippery, lubricous, courses with sinuous curves. And whatever slips away when it is grasped is called slippery, like the fish and the snake. The snake serpens takes its name because it creeps, serpere, by secret approaches. It crawls not with open steps, but with tiny thrusts of its scales. But those animals that support themselves on four feet, like the lizard and the newt, are not snakes, but are called reptiles. Snakes are also reptiles because they crawl, repere, on their stomach and breast. Of these animals there are as many poisons as there are kinds, and as many varieties of danger as there are of appearance, and as many causes of pain as there are colors. The dragon, Draco, is the largest of all the snakes, or of all the animals on earth. The Greeks call it Dracon, whence the term is borrowed into Latin so that we say Draco. It is often drawn out of caves and soars aloft and disturbs the air. It is crested and has a small mouth and narrow pipes through which it draws breath and sticks out its tongue. It has its strength not in its teeth, but in its tail, and it causes injury more by its lashing tail than with its jaws. Also, it does not harm with poison. Poison is not needed for this animal to kill, because it kills whatever it wraps itself around. Even the elephant with his huge body is not safe from the dragon, for it lurks along the paths along which the elephants are accustomed to walk, and wraps around their legs in coils and kills them by suffocating them. It is born in Ethiopia and India in the fiery intensity of perpetual heat. The viper, Wipera, is so named because it is born through force, Wiperera. For when their mother's womb is groaning to deliver, the offspring, not waiting for nature's suitable time, gnaw at and forcibly tear open their mother's sides, causing her death. Lucan says, When the body has burst apart, the knotted vipers gather. It is said that the male spits his seed into the mouth of the female viper, and she, turned from the passion of lust to rage, bites off the head of the male that is in her mouth. Thus it happens that each parent dies, the male when they mate, and the female when she gives birth. From the viper comes the pill that the Greeks call theriokos. Finally, there are as many deaths caused by snakes as there are names for them. Further, all snakes are cold by nature, and they do not strike except when they are warm. When they are cold, they injure no one. Hence, their venom is more noxious during the day than at night, for they are sluggish in the chill of night, and understandably so, since they are cold in the evening dew. Thus their venom, which is cold by nature, draws itself to the warmth of their chilled bodies. Hence, during the winter, they lie motionless in coils, but in the summer, they are uncoiled. Hence it is that whenever someone is injected with snake venom, he is stupefied at first, and then, when the poison is heated up in him and becomes fiery, it kills him forthwith. Venom, weninum, is so named because it rushes through the veins, vena, 
for its destructive effect, once infused, travels through the veins when bodily activity increases, and it drives out the soul. Hence, venom is unable to cause harm unless it reaches a person's blood. Lucan says, The pestilence of snakes is fatal when mixed in with blood. Further, all venom is cold, and hence the soul, which is fiery, flees the cold venom. Among the natural advantages that we see are common to humans as well as to irrational animals, the snake excels in a certain quickness of sense. Hence it is written in Genesis, For the serpent was shrewder than all the beasts of the earth. And Pliny says, if it may be believed, that if a snake's head escapes with only two inches of its body, it will still live. Hence it will cast its entire body towards those striking it in order to save its head. Vision in snakes is generally feeble. They rarely look directly forward, with good reason, since they have eyes not in the front of their face, but in their temples, so that they hear more quickly than they see. No other animal darts its tongue as quickly as the snake, so that it appears to have three tongues, when in fact it has one. The snake's body is moist, so that it leaves a trail of moisture wherever it goes. The tracks left by snakes are such that, Although they are seen to lack feet, they nevertheless crawl on their ribs with forward thrusts of their scales, which are spread evenly from the highest part of the neck to the lowest part of the belly. They support themselves on their scales, which are like nails, and with their ribs, which are like legs. Hence, if a snake is crushed by some blow to any part of the body, from the belly to the head, it is unable to make its way, having been crippled, because wherever the blow strikes, it breaks the spine, which activates the feet of the ribs and the motion of the body. Snakes are said to live for a long time, because when they shed their old skin, they are said to shed their old age, senectus, also meaning the cast-off skins of snakes, and return to youth. Snake skins are called cast-offs, exuii, because when snakes age, they cast off, exuere, these skins from themselves, and having cast them off, return to youth. Likewise, cast-offs and garments, induviae, are so-called because they are cast off and put on, induere. Pythagoras says that a snake is created from the spinal cord of a dead person. Ovid mentions this in his Metamorphoses, when he says, There are those who believe that the human spinal cord is changed to a snake when the spine in the sealed sepulchre has rotted. This, if it is believed, occurs with some justice, in that as a human's death comes about from a snake, so a snake comes about from a human's death. It is also said that a snake will not dare to strike a naked human. So there's Isidore. Uh, this sort of lore about animals was a common source of imagery and examples for sermons and moralistic texts, uh, basically following in the beast fable tradition. You can also see this in many medieval bestiaries, which frequently use animal behavior to illustrate claims about right or wrong living. We have one example of this, with a bit of a twist, in Richard de Forneval's Le Bestiaire d'Amour, or Bestiary of Love, a courtly French prose work from the 13th century. Richard uses the format of the bestiary, a catalog of animals, to instruct a lover by means of animal examples. Isidore left us with a quote from Ovid, a strong influence on Richard, and with that claim about snakes not biting a naked man. Uh, and this piece of animal lore 
is used by Richard here in his comparison of his lover to a viper. Uh, so I'll be reading from the English translation of The Bestiary of Love by Jeanette Beer. A woman is very desirous to know of another what she does not want known of her, and she knows how to protect herself securely against a man whom she believes to love her, like the viper. The viper is of such a nature that it is frightened and insecurely flees when it sees a naked man, yet it attacks him and has nothing but contempt for him if it sees him clothed. You have acted exactly the same way with me, fair sweetest love. For when I met you, I found you to be of a gentle disposition and somewhat modest as is fitting, as if you were a little fearful of me because of the newness of our acquaintance. Yet when you knew I loved you, you were as proud as you wished towards me, and you attacked me sometimes with your words. New acquaintance is like the naked man, and confirmed love like the clothed man. For as man is born naked and then clothes himself when he is grown, so he is naked of love at the first encounter and exposed, so that he dares to speak his heart fully to the woman. But later, when he is in love, he is so enveloped that he cannot disengage himself. He covers himself completely so that he dare say nothing of his thoughts. Instead, he is in constant fear of blame. He is caught as surely as the shod monkey. For the nature of the monkey is such that it tries to imitate whatever it sees. So the clever hunters who want to capture it by ruse spy out for themselves a place where the monkey can see them, and then they put on and take off their shoes. After that, they go away, leaving behind a pair of shoes to fit the monkey, and they hide themselves somewhere. The monkey comes and tries to copy them. It takes its shoes and puts them on to its misfortune, for before it can take off the shoes again, the hunter jumps out and attacks it. The monkey with its shoes on cannot run away or climb or scramble up a tree, so it is captured. This example clearly confirms that the naked man is comparable to the man who does not love and the clothed man to the lover. For as the monkey remains free as long as its feet are bare and is not caught until it puts on shoes, so man is not imprisoned until he is in love. This example reinforces that of the viper, and by these two means, I clearly see the reason that you were not as nice to me after you knew I loved you as you were before. The monkey is not captured until it is shod, and the viper attacks the man when it sees him clothed. So, a bit of bonus monkey lore in there with our snake lore. And I wish I could make more sense for you of Richard's bizarre reverse metaphor of intimacy in this little lecture, whereby the more in love you are, the more clothed you are. Uh, medieval poets often delight in this kind of paradoxical imagery, um, but this particular paradox never quite resolves itself into even poetic sense for me. So I leave that one for you to figure out. My last source is Bartholomeus Anglicus, or Bartholomew the Englishman, another encyclopedist, uh, this time from the late 13th century, so writing about 600 years after Isidore, uh, and heavily indebted to his predecessor. 
Bartholomew's great work is the De Proprietatibus Rerum, or On the Properties of Things, which is a pretty accurate description. Uh, Here are a selection of snake-related items pulled from uh, lots of different sections of the book, actually. The text I'm using comes from an abridged translation put together by Robert Steele at the turn of the last century, uh, which is based on an English translation from the late 14th century by John Trevisa. Steele has modernized uh, Trevisa's English somewhat, um, but we're still in an odd territory somewhere between Middle English and Early Modern English. Um, I'll do what I've usually done in these cases, which is to read it as clearly as I can in modern pronunciation while retaining the syntax. Um, I've made one change for the sake of clarity, uh, which is to use the modern plural eyes for those two things in your face that you see with, uh, in place of the older form ion. I should also credit the medieval bestiary website for directing me to Bartholomew's work. Um, They're at bestiary.ca. Uh, though the text I'm using comes from the digitized version of Steele's book, which you can find on Project Gutenberg. The spittle of a man fasting hath a manner of strength of privy infection, for it grieveth and hurteth the blood of a beast if it come into a bleeding wound and is meddled with the blood. And that, peradventure, is, as saith Avicenna, by reason of rawness. For raw humor meddled with blood that hath perfect digestion is contrary thereto in its quality, and disturbeth the temperance thereof, as authors say. And therefore it is that holy men tell that the spittle of a fasting man slayeth serpents and adders, and is venom to venomous beasts, as saith Basil. In Ireland is no serpent, no frogs, nor venomous addercop, but all the land is so contrary to venomous beasts that if the earth of that land be brought into another land and sprung on the ground, it slayeth serpents and toads. Also, venomous beasts flee Irish wool, skins, and fells, and as serpents or toads be brought into Ireland by shipping, they die anon. Thanet is a little island of ocean, and is departed from Britain with a little arm of the sea, and hath wheat fields and noble grounds, and hath its name of the death of serpents. For the earth of that land carried into any country of the world slayeth serpents forthwith, as Isidore saith. Adders lie in await for them that sleep, and if they find the mouth open of them, or of other beasts, then they creep in, for they love heat and humor that they find there. But against such adders a little beast fighteth that hight Sara, as it were a little newt, and some men mean that it is a lizard. For when this beast is aware that this serpent is present, then he leapeth upon the face that sleepeth, and scratcheth with his feet to wake him, and to warn him of the serpent. And when this little beast waxeth old, his eyes wax blind, and then he goeth into a hole of a wall against the east, and openeth his eyes afterwards when the sun is risen, and then his eyes heat and take light. This slaying adder and venomous hath wit to love and affection and loveth his mate, as it were, by love of wedlock, and liveth not well without company. Therefore, if the one is slain, the other pursueth him that slew that other with so busy wreck and vengeance that passeth weaning, and knoweth the slayer, and reaseth on him, be he in never so great company of men and of people, and busieth to slay him, and passeth all difficulties and spaces of ways, and with rack of the said death of his mate." And is not let, nay put off, but it be by swift flight, 
or by waters or rivers. Martianus saith that the asp grieveth not men of Africa or Moors, for they take their children that they have suspect, and put them to these adders. And if the children be of their kind, this adder grieveth them not. And if they be of any other kind, anon they die by venom of the adder. All right, we've at last reached the tail end of this anaconda of snake lore, and with a John Voight wink, we can finish up by turning to our medieval mystery word from last episode. That word was inanition. Strictly speaking, the version I'm citing is an Anglo-Norman French word, though French inherits it pretty much directly from Latin, uh, and it carries over into Middle English and then onwards into Modern English in essentially the same form. Uh, so, as a modern English word, it is inanition, I-N-A-N-I-T-I-O-N. As Anglo-Norman writers of medical treatises were using it in the 12th century, this word meant evacuating or emptying of bodily humors, relevant to how one might empty oneself of live vipers, I think. It comes from the Latin verb inanira, uh, to empty, it is sometimes used in a philosophical context as the opposite of repletion, the state of being filled up, though that same pairing also shows up in medical texts, too. Repletion as a medical term seems to have become rather antiquated, uh, but inanition persists. Over time, the meaning shifts from the earlier emphasis on the action of emptying out to the state of being empty or lacking something, and as such, starts to become a technical term for starvation. Now, I found a slightly different definition circulating, uh, and I haven't had the chance to ask a bona fide MD to get any clarification. Uh, some sources say it refers to the physical condition brought on by starvation. So it isn't quite synonymous with starvation, but is the symptomatic effect of starvation. Other sources define inanition as the inability of the tissues to absorb food and nutrition, which would then lead to the weakened condition, also called inanition. The difference there is that if you had some kind of metabolic or digestive disorder, you could conceivably be eating lots of food and still failing to actually absorb calories from it. Uh, so as I understand it, inanition is a technical term uh, similar to hypoxia. So hypoxia means your cells are deprived of oxygen. That could be because you're choking, or because you're drowning, uh, or because cyanide is blocking oxygen uptake at the cellular level. Uh, so hypoxia roughly equates to suffocating in the way that inanition roughly equates to starvation, um, but both embrace a broader set of causes than the common nouns would suggest. Inanition also has a cousin in modern English, inane. Uh, which also derives from the Latin for empty. Older usage in English tended to retain emptiness as the primary meaning, so you might see a reference to an inane vastness, as opposed to the sense of vain or frivolous or empty-headed that you get when it's used to describe people, a usage which really seems to kick off in the 19th century. Uh, and also, I can't leave this discussion without giving one quote from the Oxford English Dictionary set of examples for inanition, uh, a quote that's just fantastic. Um, so this is a sentence from an anatomy textbook from 1615 called The Microcosmographia, written by Helkiah Crook, 
the court physician to King James I, and the first qualified doctor appointed as keeper of the Royal Bethlehem Hospital, a.k.a. Bedlam, uh, a job which he lost due to corruption charges, uh, which sounds like it could be a good story for the Rude Tutors podcast to take a look at. Um, though I guess it technically falls outside their purview by one generation. We need someone to start a Scandalous Stewarts podcast, I guess. Anyway, here's the quote from Dr. Crook. In the dog appetite, there is no inanition or emptiness of the parts, but an exquisite sense of suction. I've definitely known some dogs who could serve as the family vacuum cleaner. And lastly, a new riddle to set us up for next episode. Here it is. No one can split, though many sunder me. I'm various colors now, but white shall be, and black I'd stay, the less my fate to see. So once again... No one can split, though many sunder me. I'm various colors now, but white shall be, and black-eyed stay, the less my fate to see. I'll be back around the end of the month with The Answer and another episode. You can find more information about this episode and its sources, as well as all of our previous episodes at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also send me email there to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com or reach out more concisely and immediately via Twitter, where we are at MDT Podcast. I think that just about does it. Um, enjoy your change of seasons, and snakes for listening.